difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. This week, we're outlaws hitting the back roads of middle America, looking for characters we can really sink our teeth into. Uh, Scott, this sounds like shenanigans. Don't start. <laughs> okay. What I'm saying is that we have a powerful appetite for good movies, and we're going to hungrily pierce through their surface with our incisive analysis. Scott, boo, low-key <laughs> right, well, background booing. The fact, that the, the fact that we're covering a movie about cannibals doesn't change the mission one bit for me. Now, <laughs> now I'm going to take a sip of this nice Chianti and move on with the show. The new movie Bones and All is about a fine young cannibal trying to figure out what to do with a life that will involve taking the lives of others. Given the graphic nature of the premise, we could have done a pairing with a zombie movie or even another offbeat horror movie like Let the Right One In. But we decided to go in a more unexpected direction and talk about Bones and All in the tradition of films about young outlaws in America. Tasha, could you tell us about this week's pairing? Sure. So there's a long cinematic tradition of outlaw lovers on the lam, from Gun Crazy to Bonnie and Clyde. But Terrence Malick's debut feature, Badlands, broke the mold. Loosely inspired by the 1958 killing spree of Charlie Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Caroline Fugate, the film is about a couple who leaves a bloody trail of destruction from South Dakota to Montana. But nothing about its tone and approach could be called conventional. Here, Martin Sheen plays a charismatic garbage man who looks like James Dean to the bored 15-year-old played by Sissy Spacek. And that's enough to convince her to drift into a relationship that turns deadly. In the new film Bones and All, Taylor Russell stars as another teenager who drifts into violence, but in her case, it's not so easily controlled. As a cannibal, she has an instinct to gnaw on human flesh, and when she meets a fellow eater, quote-unquote, played by Timothy Chalamet, they hit the road too, trying to figure out what the future might hold for them. In other words, it's about ethics in eating humans. So this week, we'll explore a young Terrence Malick's surprising take on the crime picture, and next week, we'll bring in a cannibal horror movie that's equally resistant to its genre. Please stay with us. Nobody's coming out of this thing happy, especially not us. I can't deny we've had fun, though. We hid out in the wilderness, down by a river in a grove of cottonwoods. It being the flood season, we built our house in the trees. We planned a huge network of tunnels under the forest floor, and our first order of business every morning was to decide on a new password. He gave me lectures on how a gun works, how to take it apart and put it back together again in case I had to carry on without him. He said that if the devil came at me, I could shoot him with a gun. Over the course of two months straddling 1957 and 1958, Charles Starkweather, a 19-year-old garbage collector, brought his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, along on a killing spree that started in Lincoln, Nebraska, and ended in Wyoming after the shooting deaths of 10 people. It was a huge deal at the time, drawing a large manhunt and heavy media coverage, much of it centered on Starkweather's striking, roguish good looks. America had both a compelling celebrity murder case and evidence that nobody was truly safe, even in the heartland of the country. Starkweather's execution via electric chair happened in 1959, 
but more stark weathers and more tabloid killing sprees would follow in the decades to come. When Terrence Malick decided to make Badlands, a loose riff on the Starkweather Fugate case, his directorial debut, he decided that he had the ghosts of other Lovers of the Lamb movies haunting him, most prominently Bonnie and Clyde, which represented a significant change not only in how outlaws were depicted, but how movies were made. Gone was the conventional morality that always had to play a role in movies like this, where the law finally catches up on these characters and order is restored. The law may catch up on Bonnie and Clyde, but even their famous death in a hail of bullets has a disturbing erotic charge that's much different than Johnny Law putting them in the clink. From the opening moments, there's nothing remotely familiar about Badlands. Through the voiceover narration that would become his hallmark, Malik allows this story to be told by Sissy Spacek as Holly, a 15-year-old who lives in Fort Dupree, South Dakota with her father, who has a job painting signs. Holly's mother died of pneumonia years earlier, and her father doesn't show much warmth. In the narration, she talks about her dad taking their wedding cake out of the freezer after her mother's funeral and giving it to the yard man. And though Holly couldn't be described as grief-stricken or traumatized exactly, she's bored and lonely, and doesn't see much of a destiny for herself. Kit, played by Martin Sheen, changes all that. Grown-ups may be able to recognize Kit for what he is, an antisocial greaser who can't even hold down a job as a garbage collector, but to Holly, he looks like James Dean, and his life as a drifter only makes him seem more worldly, the type of person who can relieve her boredom and take her someplace new. Holly's father is sufficiently alarmed by Kit, but when Kit decides the two of them should be together, he shoots her father twice in the chest when he threatens to call the authorities. Though mildly panicked by the incident, Holly doesn't really see any other option than to hit the road with Kit and see where the road takes them. And though they do have some nice moments living together in the woods, Kit shoots three more people and the two peel off across the Midwestern Plains with vague plans to reach Saskatchewan via Montana. There are many elements of Badlands that separate it from any other movie of its kind. For one, Malick introduced another signature touch by putting the story in the context of the natural world emphasizing various flora and fauna and the wide-open beauty of the American plains. From that perspective, the violence feels like a disruption of nature, much like the combat in the verdant Guadalcanal of Malick's 1999 war movie, The Thin Red Line. But it's Holly's narration that really helps set the tone for a film about passive amorality, the way people like her can accept atrocity because they haven't developed the will and moral fortitude to draw the line. Quote, he wanted to die with me, and I dreamed of being lost forever in his arms, says Holly in Happier Times, before Kit murders her father and she starts to realize that they may die together after all. Later, in their place in the woods, Holly says, At times, I wish he'd fall into the river and drown so I could watch. Her feelings for him do shift, but never as definitively as you might expect. As bleak as their journey gets, he's still showing her a world she would have never seen otherwise. There's one piece of narration towards the end that captures Holly's contradiction so well that I have to read it in full. Quote, that night we moved closer to the border and clear across the prairie at the very edge of the horizon. We could make out the gas fires of the refineries at Missoula, while to the south we could see the lights of Cheyenne, a city bigger and grander than I'd ever seen. I felt all kinds of things looking at the lights of Cheyenne, but most important, I made up my mind to never again tag around with a hell-bent type, no matter how in love with him I was, unquote. We'll talk about all the beauty in the bloodshed after the break. Mm-hmm. 
I felt all kind of things looking at the lights of Cheyenne, but most important, I made up my mind to never again tag around with the hell-bent type, no matter how in love with him I was. Finally, I found the strength to tell Kit this. I pointed out that even if we got to the far north, he still couldn't make a living. I can get a job at the mines. Northwest mines. Hell, I got all the qualifications. I can ride and uh, shoot. And uh, I don't mind the cold. That's what I kind of like the cold. What? No. I was just running off of the mouth. As usual. So we have seen many lovers on the lamb outlaw stories on film before. Certainly there are plenty even before Badlands. What sets Badlands apart from the rest? I think you kind of touched on one thing with, with Bonnie and Clyde, which is, you know, in some ways this is kind of in opposition to there is, you know, even if for all the radical breaks that movie makes, it doesn't you know there's still genre trappings there's still some of the things you expect from lovers on on the lamb movie and there's still characters who aren't just as you know weird or an un- unformed as these characters i i mean that in, in a positive sense i mean this is you know part of what makes the movie interesting these are people who are you know misfits in in this world and are in the situation that just kind of lets them let the, the misfitness develop in some ways, but it's it's certainly not cool characters uh, having gunfights and things like that. Yeah, I mean they're so palpably young, both of them, in a way that like I don't necessarily associate with seasoned criminals. Like like even Kit, who is like the older. I guess more experienced of this duo like comes off really immature and petulant and and weird like you say like they both have a very strange offbeat charisma and that like you understand why sort of why they're attracted to each other and you're like compelled to watch them but there's like they just kind of come across as like dumb kids <laughs> most mm. of the time, which I think is an interesting seasoning to the sort of like crime caper element here. I mean, Sheen was, I think, 31 when he made this. The character is supposed to be in his mid-20s. But to yeah. me, I mean, his mindset well, is completely- 25 specifically. Right. Yeah. His mindset is is that of a teen boy. I mean, yeah. with this like, you know, kind of, you are the center of the universe. Everything everything you encounter has like some sort of weird significance to your importance in the world. Like all this like weird rituals he does. Like I'm really struck this time about the mound of stones he starts building- hmm. Right before he's taken in, never explained. Maybe, maybe it's a kind of a memorial to himself. Yeah, no. I yes. mean, he, well, we see him do it a couple other times. Like they, yeah. they set off the, or they do like a time capsule that they bury, and then he sets off a, or he frees a balloon with mementos in it, and then yeah, the the rock thing at the end. So he's he's a character who seems very interested in memorializing these moments of his life in kind of physical ways. And not just moments. I mean, when he's uh, talking to the, I, I, I don't quite understand it at the end. I guess they're at a like a military base because he's being extradited mm-hmm. by law enforcement. But when he's chatting people up and tossing them just like everything in his pockets, mm-hmm. because he knows these things are going to be souvenirs that they're going to be, you know, all of these people are going to remember him and show these things off, maybe in the media, maybe just to their families. But it's going to be like 
you know, the the famous criminal who rampaged across the country killing people handed me this pen, handed me this lighter like this. This belongs to him. He's memorializing himself like well before he's dead over and over. Yeah, he becomes conscious of his own legend. I mean, the, I mean, this. I mean, we only get a glimpse of it here, but you know, the, these these crimes they set off this huge wave of media attention, and and obviously they've they've got everyone from you know the the police to to bounty hunters coming after them, um, and so I, I think at a cer- certain point he's he's certainly aware that he's being talked about, and that little that little memorial is like uh, it, you know it's it's just it's you know, pure narcissism. I mean, it's, it's him, him casting, you know, being around to make a, a, you know, a legend of himself and he's never happier or more in, in the film than when he is standing, when he's holding court in chains with those other policemen, he's having, he's having a great time. He's maybe just as happy when, when the one policeman says, you remind me of James Dean. Mm-hmm. That, may, that may be his moment of his greatest happiness. face lights up for that. Yeah, he's you know, he he's definitely very pleased. They seem, the two of them honestly seem very vapid to me. Mm-hmm. And I was reading um, some of the responses to the film at the time, which like critically kind of positive uh, box office, not so much. Like it took a while for this movie to, to become a classic. But one of the thoughts about it, like people just kept thinking about it in terms of how it fits in response or in relationship to Bonnie and Clyde. And I guess some of the more interesting thoughts I was seeing is just like, this doesn't feel like a companion piece or a copycat. It feels like almost a, a slight takedown of the like the the kind of cool that people responded to and in some cases were repulsed by in Bonnie and Clyde. This almost feels like a a takedown of that in the way it kind of dissects the the mind of the killer and finds a lot of charm in it that people respond to, but also just a lot to kind of look down on. You know, their their relationship, at least uh, Holly talks about it in terms of this this great fairy tale love. But you don't really see that very often on her face. Like there's there's happiness when they're holding each other or or when they're kissing. But most of the time she looks at him like she doesn't really understand how she got there. And sometimes she as she she says, she hopes he's going to fall in the river and drown so she can watch. Mm -hmm. There's just a real childishness the, the things like their their little dirt clod fight which seems like one of the few moments in the film where she's really having fun and they're really entirely on each other's levels but also just the fact that they run away and build a tree house they literally yeah. run away mm-hmm. from home and and build a, a swiss family robinson tree house and play hide and seek <laughs> and play hide and seek together you know during that kind of hideout in the woods sequence i, I i'm was fascinated by the scene of her looking through the stereopticon, I think, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the, the Viewmaster, basically, mm-hmm. and talking about like her husband and wondering if, you oh, know, yeah. her husband is wondering about her too. And it's like, she's not talking about Kit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like she's thinking of like a, a future point in her life, a future love in her life that is not this experience she is experiencing right now it's like she is has almost like disassociated from it as her actual life and it is a story yeah her choices have kind of like disappeared right i mean she's just at a certain point she feels kind of trapped and along for this ride that uh, she for the most part is not enjoying at all 
but that moment happens so so early, mm-hmm. like so long before that sense of of being trapped. Although I guess some of that does come out of you know the murder of her father, which she does mm-hmm. not appear to have anticipated or condoned at all. But yeah, Genevieve, I'm so glad that you pulled that out because that was that was also on my list of just like there are a bunch of lines in this film that I was just like you could you could build a thesis paper around this, and that was one of them. The fact that she's in the middle of her fairy tale romance with the the man who came in and, and swept her off her feet. And she's literally thinking about, mm, I wonder who I'm going to marry and what he's going to look like and what he's doing right now. She's just so clearly not seeing any kind of future for them together. And when you contrast that with their moment up against the car at the end of the film, where Kit looks over and says, you know, it's a pity about your father. We're going to have to sit down and have a long talk about that mm-hmm. someday. And it's just very clear that he is imagining a future where they're still together, where they can still talk, where they they still have a relationship. Their goals and their ideas of of what comes next are just so completely mismatched. And both of them just kind of a little outside of the reality that they're currently physically in. I mean, I think the other thing, too, is that it, that the film emphasizes is that Holly is a child. I mean, she is still just 15 years old and, and, uh, and there, there's something, her, her narration is so, she's so passive. I mean, uh, to all of this that you just feel that she's not fully formed, that she doesn't have a sense of who she is, much less a sense of how to assert herself in, in this relationship with, with someone who's, you know, older and powerful and dangerous. And it's, and I think a lot of the, the narration, reflects that i mean i mean it's so spacey and and innocent and passive but also occasionally filled with lines like you know her wanting to see him you know drown in the river i mean like it kind of drifts around in that malicky way and creates i I think a character i think a character who who we really are supposed to understand you know as not fully formed as a as a person but I don't think he is either. And that's what makes this movie just feel so different from so many, you know, charismatic criminal stories. The fact that she doesn't really get anything out of sex and it kind of seems like he doesn't either. That little conversation between them that's just kind of like, ah, so that's it. I, I don't get what the big deal is. Yeah, me neither. They, It's not that they aren't having sex. It's that this isn't some like great passionate romance that we're all supposed to swoon for or long for or or find idealized, like because they're both kind of children. Really early on in the movie, when she talks about being 15 and him being 25, I started to think about the parallels between this and Lolita, you know, where you have another case of an older man just taking one look at a fairly young girl and deciding he wants her and eliminating her caretaker and taking her on the run. And as we see more and more of of this coupling of this this movie, it's just clearer and clearer that like Kid is not really that much of a predator. He's just reactive and in the moment and nothing seems to be all that real to him except whatever's right in front of him that he wants. Yeah, I mean, when I said earlier that they both read it so young, I mean, I say that knowing, obviously, that he is 25. As you say, they make that very clear right right up top. But like, he didn't finish school. Presumably, he he dropped out maybe even earlier than, than she did. Like, he, he, there's nothing like adult or refined or intelligent about him, to, to, to be honest. Like, you know, um, so he reads as much younger emotionally like they both feel emotionally young and to 
bring it back to the, the narration, like it's really canny in, in evoking that because like teenagers, generally speaking, obviously there are very precocious teenagers uh, all through history, but your average teenager maybe feels very deeply, but does not yet have the oratory skills to express those uh, feelings very deeply. And SpaceX narration, you know, she stumbles on these like occasional moments of unintentional profundity that are profound because she doesn't realize what she's saying because she's just like she doesn't yet have the tools of self-reflection and self-expression to communicate what she is feeling to us. So we're just kind of left with the sense that there is something between them that they can't express and we can't really understand because they can't express it. And that just feels central to like teenage love to me. I can't help but wonder if it's very conscious that the they don't spend more time evoking the movies. You know, this it would be very in place for a, in a movie like this for them to talk about lovers that they've seen on the screen. Like we see Holly reading from Kantiki and you know, we we know that she's got like some sort of interest in kind of like adventure and fairy tales and fantasies. But this, again, kind of seeing this movie in conjunction with Bonnie and Clyde, it's surprising to me that as she's talking about this, you know, imaginary version of this great romance they have, it's never placed in terms of, you know, like the movies or like, you know, famous Bonnie and Clyde would be an example, but like other famous, uh, like on the run couples. It seems like it has to be conscious just because it seems like it has such a place in who these kids are and what they would likely have done for fun. I mean, she does she does recognize him as uh, looking like James, James Dean. Dean. That's true. And I, and I think there's um, just a broad sense that that what she could get out of this relationship is something <laughs> that which is what, not what she's getting out. She can get some kind of adventure. He can show her things that she doesn't know. She can show her the world that she hasn't seen. I mean, that's that's the thing that I, I was citing with that little bit of narration at the end of the keynote, which is kind of my, you know, the narration is really great in this, but like that's kind of my favorite bit because even in this terrible part of the trip where they're, where they're ambling their way towards Saskatchewan, but never going to make it and are in the <laughs> middle of the, middle of the plains with no, with no food and no showers and nothing, any of this stuff, she's still talking about you know the fires of the the, uh, the refineries in Missoula and the and the lights of Cheyenne and I mean these are incredible things that she would not have imagined. I mean to us, of course, it's like well, I mean you can probably see city lights more spectacular than Cheyenne, but she hasn't seen any of that stuff and and uh, and that's kind of the promise of being with this guy who 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 may be himself young and immature, but is just worlds is far more worldly than she is. It's almost a moment of comedy. I mean, it's there's a a drama and a melancholy to that speech, but there's also just the kind of sheer comedy of I'm still figuring out who I am. I'm still very young, but I think I've basically decided to not hang out with outlaws who kill people for fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> maybe maybe next time, not that. I guess. Yeah, that is uh, that's true. Uh, I, I, I think, I'm learning from my experience. But I, I, I don't <laughs> want to kind of underplay how much kid is just truly a malevolent character i mean there's a that, that is a distinction there i mean like I, I think there's a you can make an argument for holly's 
you know, innocence, uh, maybe, maybe some kind of a, I mean, a sense of, uh, she has some, some sense of right or wrong, even if she isn't asserting that sense of right or wrong. But I think the, the kit, the, the, the most trigger happy man she's ever met, which is another great line. <laughs> <laughs> of the many, many men she's met. I mean, her dad did shoot her dog right in front of her. Oh my God. It's yeah, incredible. True. Incredible. That was something. But I mean, I th- you know, the, the way in which he goes about his business, the way, you know, the, the, the ruthlessness with, with which he kills others. I mean, it, you know, maybe he's, he's going to argue that it was, that it's us or them, but, but there is something pretty frightening about this man too the combination of his easygoing demeanor and charm because he's really charms the policeman at the end yeah. he's and he's he's a charming character and his complete lack of morality a lack of you know any sort of feeling at all like to me one of the most chilling moments is when he and he shoots down in the storm in the storm so i was like do you think i got him i don't know we better go you know it's just like he's just doing it because that's what he does you know and there's no there's no remorse and there's no sort of shame to what he's doing it's just it's he's kind of found who he is and who he is is it's a fairly monstrous person i mean his his short time working in the cattle yards feels very significant you know i mean, I mean even just the very first scene of him is like him pointing out a dead dog, you know, like, I think does he, he has like, do you want this? You want to eat the dog? You pay a dollar for him to eat the Exactly. That's the first line in the movie. It's not, <laughs> not a freaking collie. Yeah, he's introduced as having a very strange relationship with death. Another image that just really sticks with me is him with the dead cow kind of standing on top of it. Just like, yeah. kind of just like to see what happens or you know like it's not even really clear what his thoughts are in that moment but he he seems to have no sense of gravity when it comes to death and that just seems to extend directly to him inflicting it on others the specific voiceover that happens while he's doing that is holly talking about how weird he is, how he does strange things that, and, you know, the the implication being that she doesn't understand. But at that moment when he's kind of nudging the cow and then standing on it, I think the implication is and that you probably don't understand either. What the heck? Something that uh, I think is a big relevant question in all of this as regards his kind of sociopathic nature and his facility with weapons and his response to things the Wikipedia summary of this film says he's a Korean War veteran. Yeah. I was going to ask about that, too. I, I don't remember that being in the film at all. Yeah, and I was wondering if I missed something. There's a moment Same. where he invites her to eat a fallen fudge sickle, and she giggles, which is funny because they she's just finished talking about how he likes her because she's not giggly. And then he says very seriously, kids eat stuff like that in Korea. Mm. Oh, and. Okay. I think that deciding based on that, that he's a veteran and that he's been there is a really big leap. Yeah. You know, that that sounds exactly like the kind of stuff sort of thing that, you know, a, a person with no real understanding of other countries or other mm-hmm. cultures might say. And I think that whoever wrote this is maybe overinterpreting, but I was like, is, did I miss something? And it, it sounds like if I did, everybody else didn't get it. I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, Taxi Driver is about a character who's has some who's a Viet, Vietnam veteran and it's that that is very lightly suggested as well not this lightly suggested but yeah. but it's certainly not uh but yeah I was surprised by that little detail too and it's not nothing that the film brings out though I think there is there is some suggestion of past 
trouble of some kind, right? With the, in the employment office. And there's, a, there seems to be some mm-hmm. weirdness there about that suggests that he was in jail before, right? Yeah. We also don't know much about his living situation or family situation. And the shot that really highlighted that for me is there's a point really early on before he and Holly have slept together where she's talking about, you know, when when he goes to sleep at night and there's a picture of him lying shirtless in a very fusty looking like lacy bed with a spray of peacock feathers decorating the wall behind it. And I found it very hard to imagine him setting that up. I, I immediately wondered if, like, this was the house that he grew up in and his mother had died or if a caretaker, uh, maybe an older woman, had taken him in. What we see of where he appears to live early in the film just has, a, like, a very feminine touch throughout it. But we don't have any idea, really, like, who raised him or, or under what circumstances. There's a lot about him we don't know. In in some ways, it's kind of appropriate because you don't really want much that will explain this character who is kind of defined by his odd and then ultimately, you know, horrific behavior by by his actions. Yeah, I mean, I think most of I think the film is really devoted mostly to defining Holly. I mean, like that Mm -hmm. it's Holly who's our narrator you know, in our surrogate and, and, you know, and it's, it, it, to me, that's just a, that becomes such a fascinating approach because it's, it's both, it's unusual and difficult for a movie to put a passive character at the center of the story, it, you know, because you, because you, you always, you tend to want to want the active person to be the one kind of driving the narrative along. And, and this is so much about someone who's kind of like lured sort of drifting into this situation and so, you know, and who herself is trying to figure out who this guy is and, and put it, get a handle on his allure and also a handle on a lot of his uh, less pleasant habits. So, so I, I, think, I think it's fine, you know, that we leave Kit where he is in terms of, you know, developing that character. I think, I think if you, you, you do too much with that kind of hit, you kind of lose some of the, the mystery a bit. Not to stray too far from from this film, but it does set the pattern for Malick narrators like Linda Manns and Days yeah. of Heaven. And even, you know, most of the characters in The Thin Red Line don't really have a whole lot of control over their situation either. So I think he's really interested in what these people who you know, may have limited choices and, and where they're going. I, I think, I think the fact that Holly chooses to go is, is kind of key to the film, but, but I think he's interested in the observations of people who are kind of overwhelmed by their, their, the, the situations around them. I think that this is in a way kind of a, a classic coming of age film in just a very like un, unfamiliar form in terms of the details, because it is about her passivity, but it's also about her shedding it, you know, by the end of the film, even though she does it in a kind of, you know, naive and and not very forthright way by today's movie standards. Like we would we would expect a big speech about why she's leaving him and instead she's just kind of like I don't wanna. She just plants. <laughs> she's like I'm yeah. just mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're just you're giving me an image of a, a dog that's decided it yep. <laughs> it, it doesn't want to head home exactly. and is just putting all four feet down. <laughs> But yeah, she's a very passive character until she decides not to be. She's allowing him to call the shots until she decides that she's done with that, that she's tired of it. And, you know, it's it's a pretty classic, 
I've found myself enough to know, you know, this, the same thing that we sort of hear when she's talking about her future husband uh, or when she's talking about the lights of Cheyenne. I don't necessarily know what I want out of life, but I know it's not you. Hmm. I mean, there's also opportunity to for her to to her to refuse to go with him as well because he is under assault. I mean, like he, he he she can say no and not worry as much about the repercussions as she might in that in that moment. He's 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 been found. I mean, it could just as well could be. Yes, she sees an opportunity, but she also. You could say that she sees the chance to separate herself from him before they're arrested. Like, it's just things are going to go much better for her as somebody who surrendered at the first sign of authority and and the first sign of freedom than somebody who's Bonnie and Clyde in that car with him and, and end up shot. But again, because her interiority is so vague, because her way of expressing herself is so vague, there's just not a lot of sense of that calculation. There's there's not a sense of, I can finally escape you because there's somebody here to protect me. It's just more, again, it's, it's foot planning. Eh, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> They're both living in the moment in a big way throughout the movie. There's not, not, not a lot of planning even, even five minutes ahead. Well, except when when does he tell her to meet him? Like New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty four. Is that after he's yeah. been caught or right before? It's it's when he's right parting from her. It's when he's about to jump into the car and drive off. Right. Mm. It's when he's throwing that yeah. tantrum. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, he's spinning the bottle to see what direction they're going to drive in. And but then he also yeah. he d- drives a different direction. I think <laughs> I, before we kind of head out of this discussion, I wanted to kind of touch a little bit on malik uh some more and some and certain malik touches and and what because i think one of the more unique elements of this film besides the narration is malik's depiction of the landscape i mean it, it, you know his assertion i guess of the natural world is such a, an important part of all of malik's films and, and it's it's it gives this film such an unusual feel i mean so what did you make of that what do you make of kind of the insistence of of showing nature of showing uh, you know the the american plains of showing uh animals why uh, bopping about every once in a while you know I, I keep thinking about how so many of malik's films certainly not an observation unique to me but are filled with you know these edenic imagery and, and things that that is, is spoiled edens and humans kind of falling short of the you know the pos- the the beauty of nature. I mean, you see it in Days of Heaven. You see it in Thin Red Line. This one's really fascinating, though, because these are characters who, you know, to what degree we want to assign complicity to Holly. You know, that's that's certainly another whole other discussion. But these are characters who really create a horrible crime and then kind of return to this innocent state. You know, living in nature. You know, in a treehouse, living off the land. You know, doing nothing but kind of wandering around and seeing the beauty of things, and occasionally hoping the other one will drown. It's, it's such a strange. <laughs> it's such a strange situation, and 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 it's you know, I part of what I like about it is, is you know, Malik is really happy. I think inspiring. Uh, happy to inspire all these mixed feelings at once. It's like the, you know these are young lovers in in this beautiful nature, and they're also horrible criminals with no sense of morality whatsoever. It, it is really confusing, like kind of weird to plant your head when when watching parts of this film. It's interesting that they don't really talk about the the landscape. Like one of the things that you get a lot of in Days of Heaven, in the New World in particular, is just people describing the 
place that they're in people like looking out at these these huge open spaces and you get a little bit of that with the lights of cheyenne but like when they're living in the forest building a tree house she's talking about the tree house that they built she's not talking about how green the grass is and how big the sky is and how warm the sun is and like all of these malic things about just you know being overwhelmed by the fecundity of life in a like whatever the exact opposite of Werner Herzog's take on on nature is it's like she's feeling it but she's not verbalizing it as though that's something that he just came to later in terms of feeling it instinctively here, but maybe wanting to get it a little more literal and on the record later. Another sort of element, I guess, of how he frames the natural world that I want to touch on is sort of just a connection I saw to Days of Heaven. I actually saw a couple connections to Days of Heaven. One uh, I'll just touch on real briefly, but is the fire, like the way that the house burning up was filmed reminded me so much of the fields burning in Days of Heaven, just like the big swirls, funnels of of fire felt very similar to me. But also, kind of related, in both of those films, there's giant ornate houses that are kind of plopped in the middle of this beautiful natural world. And there's two of them in in this one, actually, like the uh, Holly's home at the beginning, and then the the mansion that they take refuge in for, for a little while. So there is sort of this dichotomy of like, I don't even want to say civilization necessarily because the the house in Days of Heaven doesn't really feel like that to me but just like this massive ornate domicile plopped in the middle of a film that is also very fixated on the the natural world outside of it just I'm not quite sure what like the deeper meaning is there but it just struck me as an interesting rhyme between these two 70s Malick films. Speaking of the rich man's house, I just want to call out the fact that the the guy that shows up to the door and gets turned away because the guy inside is sick is Terrence Malick. And apparently the reason that he's Terrence Malick is because the guy cast for that role just didn't show up on the day they were shooting. (laughs) There's a lot of interesting stuff on the making of documentary before we close the book on this for now, Uh, um, including how awful the fire scene was to film and people got hurt and it was just kind of a a, a disaster apparently it's a very difficult shoot you know but malik apparently was already in you know i think this is some ways is is is, do you feel like he's not quite going full malik yet because it does feel like the narrative driving the film instead of uh other elements to kind of pushing the film along as, as you get with most other malik films but he's making stuff up on the fly, like choosing shots the day of. And, and one of my favorite details is Jack Fisk, the production designer who met and married Sissy Spacek on this film and, and worked on all, all kinds of wonderful films. But the sign painting scene, it was Malick's idea when Warren, Warren Oates is painting the sign to, to remove one panel. So you get like this little window into nature with uh, and then the expanse behind them. You know, while in contrast to to the sign in the foreground, it just these touches like that. You know, you could you could. It's one of those films you could just watch again and again, and 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 uh, and find something new every time. Yeah, that's that's fun. Like that contrast between the actual nature natural world and just like the very rigid outlines of the the grass and the animals that he's painting. Speaking of the painting aspect. One of the things that would go on to characterize uh, Malick's work in general is just the way he uses light, the way he lights the natural world or the the use of natural light, I guess, to depict the natural world in just like this glowing sort of way. Pauline Kael's review called out the fact that 
she she spoke very derisively of the fact that his work looks like a Maxfield Parish painting, which is just a comparison that would continue to go on and be made throughout his career because of the way he lit people like outdoors and especially in fields. When they leave the house before it burns down and Holly has a painting under her arm that she's taking away. It's a print of a Maxfield Parish painting. <laughs> and that Maxfield Parish painting is apparently a painting that was so commonly reproduced and, and set in households that it would have just, at, at the time, it would have just been like a banal, almost dogs playing poker, like level of kind of kitsch art. But there's a sequence that I, I didn't notice until I started like reading about the, the use of that uh, painting specifically, where he focuses in on the painting hanging in the treehouse and then it's uh like two nymphs in the woods basically in a, a kind of primal setting and then he pans down to kitten holly lying in the same position like imitating mm. the painting which just seems like he may have uh shot a bunch of this on the fly or, or planned a bunch of this on the day but that at least feels pretty calculated in a, a fun sort of way well, uh, Malik may not be one uh, for planning, but we are. We have a, we have a show to move <laughs> forward here. Uh, uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get into it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. They recently did a podcast interview with Bones and All screenwriter David Kajanik on the art of screen adaptation. They also have their annual wrap party in New York on January 14th, and that's always tremendous fun. Tickets are still on sale at filmspotting.net. For feedback this week, we have a couple of good missives about two of the year's most talked about films, Tar and the Banshees of Inishirin. Keith, you want to start us off? Sure. Jamshid writes, I had a couple of thoughts about the Tar discussion, which I loved and got a ton out of. One, on the untranslated German, I speak enough German to understand what she is saying and it's just directions about how and how not to play. I don't think it makes her more or less sympathetic. If anything, it shows her mastery of the material and her exacting standards. But I think you can get that without knowing exactly what she is saying. Two, on the final scenes, I thought the movie both wanted to show Tar as a predator and take her seriously as an artist. To me, the Bernstein videotape scene conveys her remembering why she got into this in the first place and being genuinely moved by the realization. It's the first time we see her in a moment of sincere humility. And the final scene to me is humbling, but also a partial redemption where she's back doing what she loves and what she excels at, now without the recognition and the glitz. I definitely think that it, it's true that you get the sense of her mastery of the material and her exacting standards without knowing exactly what she's saying. I do feel like with as with so many things with Tar, I felt like, do we really need this much of this? Like, do we do we need so and Scott's already yes. like nodding yes, emphatically. <laughs> do we do we really need this much untranslated German? That's just her. And, and the fact if she's just saying very banal stuff, that's like, you know, play this more slowly or it's like emphasize these notes. 
Scott, you've always had more patience than uh, I have had with scenes that just do one thing for a very long time. Gene Tillman just won uh, the number one film <laughs> in the world right now, Tasha. This is, this is I guarantee everyone you. Everyone is coming you around to my way of seeing things. Have more patience with that movie than I do. Wait, wait. Just because our listeners won't be hearing this for another week or so, Sky, can you explain what you mean by Gene Dillman being the number one film in the world right now? So, so yeah. So the 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 Sight and Sound poll came out uh, today as a recording. And uh, for the longest time, it was Citizen Kane was the number one film. The last time the poll was held in 2012, Vertigo was number one. And now this year, Chantal Ackerman's Gene Dealman, three and a half hour film uh, about a woman who cuts potatoes and, and uh, peels potatoes and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> it, that is, uh, that's number one. Number one. Uh, very slow. Unrelated, it was also just re-released in theaters worldwide, and it's make it made a billion dollars. <laughs> yep. Biggest film in the world right Not, now. Knocked Wakanda forever out of the top spot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Move over, uh, Top Gun, Maverick. Jean Dealman is here to stay, and she's got potatoes to cut. I, think, I guess maybe she just peels them, I think. I don't know if we ever see any cutting. Do we see cutting, Keith? Have you seen this film? We might be slightly off let's, topic. Let's edit this off out because I, my shame is I have still not seen Gene Dealman, so I'm going to have to because I'm a film critic who has not seen the greatest consensus choice for greatest film of all time. <laughs> it's a I good choice. I don't think we should edit this no, out. No, I think I'm it's all fun. Say, I've been wanting to watch it for years. I just haven't gotten yeah. to it. So anyway, yeah. go on. Carve out some time, my friend. I will. Carve it out of the potato of your time. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we're slightly off topic, uh, Scott. If I can if I can manage to veer you away from Gene Dalman for a second, okay, go ahead. Uh, I do appreciate the insight of this letter. Like I, I yes. appreciate somebody writing in to to let us know what she's saying. As far as the ending goes, I I remain fascinated by it because it's such a, a Rorschach blot. I have read so many takes on this. Uh, we we ran one at at Polygon about how it's a, a very positive ending that I know for a fact kind of like local local critic uh, slack that Scott is also in uh, had a great deal to mock about that piece but you know there was there was a writer who felt that it was just a very positive take I've read so many different pieces about that ending and I really think that what you get out of it is what you put into it to a, a large degree and and this take you know no different whether you see it as a, a come down and a humiliation or a comedy moment or a kind of revival or her beginning a long climb up a ladder is just very much up to the individual. And I find that pretty interesting. I think you could also choose all of the above, too. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot going on in that moment. I, I do not see it as a moment of har har humiliation. No, definitely uh, not. Nor do I see it as as a triumphant moment either. But but I think it's I think part of why there's been so many different reactions to it is because it is inviting that many reactions. There's just a lot going on in that scene. The movie's very rich uh, in that in that way, and that's 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 part of why I appreciate it. For sure. And also just, also just kind of mysterious and and evocative. I mean, that, that slow pan across that audience full of monster hunter cosplayers uh, in incredibly elaborate garb with very serious looks on their faces. Like, that is a shot that invites you to to read things in and, and to set your imagination on fire. I mean, whatever the heck it is, it's a really amazing ending. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you for this email. Uh, now we have a... We wanted to, to highlight... A great comment from our Patreon post on the Banshees of Inishirin. Tasha? Elizabeth writes, 
I read this movie in a much darker way than any of you seemed to. Spoilers ahead. I saw this mostly as a movie about loneliness and how people cope with it or don't. McDonough effectively paints a picture of how bleak life on Inisherin is. There's nothing to do, as you guys noted, and you're alternately very isolated and smothered by a small community of people who open your mail and know everything you ever did. Maybe this is colored by a vacation visit to Inishmore, where our very nice local tour guide nevertheless described it as a bleak place that very few people want to live and that even the English couldn't be bothered to subjugate. (laughs) I love that detail. Patrick has carved out some warmth for himself between his sister, Jenny, and Calm. When Calm abruptly ends their friendship, he can't handle the impending isolation. Siobhan copes with the isolation of Inisherin by leaving for the mainland. Dominic tries to cope with this by befriending Patrick and romancing Siobhan, but when that doesn't work, he commits suicide. I wish he'd talked more about Dominic, since he's one of the more interesting characters. Barry Keegan takes a role that could be a collection of ticks or a shallow fool role and gives it such depth and idiosyncratic weirdness. I think there's also a hint that part of Colm's plan might be depression slash a suicidal impulse. Planning to focus on his fiddle playing by cutting off his fingers is such an obviously nonsensical plan that there must be something else. The priest mentions past references of despair, and Colm affirms that he doesn't plan to do anything, which reads differently after Patrick's threats. It's hard not to root for Patrick to follow Siobhan to the mainland. With Jenny dead and the war over, there's nothing keeping him on the island. It's like he's so committed to his relationship with Colm that he'd rather live miserably in the embers of it than abandon it completely. I really like all these observations here, but especially the end of it makes me think about Patrick's decision to stay and him saying to Colm that, you know, this this isn't over, basically. And it makes me, I'm just kind of sitting here recontextualizing the entire movie in my head. So forgive me if this is a little half-baked. But it does make me wonder if part of Patrick's, like, insistence to, you know, remain in Colm's life is a sort of a recognition of this despair and a recognition of an impulse in Colm and a desire to keep him from succumbing to that. And, you know, the having Dominic in the picture as someone who is like kind of doing the inverse to to Patrick and trying to like push himself on to him and not getting anything back from it and him being the one who does kill himself makes me just kind of feel a I I see like kind of a link between those three characters and sort of a desire to keep someone who is drowning uh, afloat uh, you know someone you you consider a friend and I don't I, I don't think that Patrick is necessarily emotionally competent enough to be cognizant that like that's what he's doing but I feel like it it might be driven by, like I said, a recognition of that despair in his friend. I do agree that we probably should have talked more about Dominic, because I, when we had this discussion, I was just, I was so focused on Patrick and Calm and the setting. I didn't think about Dominic all that much, but going back and, and kind of looking at the relationship specifically that he develops with Patrick, or even more so the, the relationship he seems to want with him, I can't help but wonder whether Padraig's obsession with Colm and kind of burrowing back into Colm's good graces comes in part just from a feeling that he's he's dropped on the social register a fair bit by being rejected by somebody who is held in esteem, you know, so much esteem that, that people come from the mainland to hear his music, so much in esteem that he can command a crowd down at the local pub, so much in esteem that, like, outsiders want to come just 
play music with him. You know, he he's kind of what passes for royalty on this tiny island. And suddenly Patrick is no longer invited to court and he has to hang out with the, the, the jester, you know, basically the the village idiot that everybody looks down on. He's now at that level instead. And he just he just can't handle it. I mean, there are there are a lot of ways to read this metaphorically or or in terms of what he wants. And in the end, it probably just all comes down to like none of us like having our lives out of our own control or feeling rejected by other people. But I do think that Dominic's presence and Patrick's just like obvious discomfort with the idea of having to be Dominic's friend instead uh, says a lot about this movie that that we didn't talk about much. And everyone has to sort of cling to other people as a lifeline because there really isn't anything else there for them. I mean, if 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 Patrick doesn't have Colm and and if Dominic doesn't have Patrick and and if and and Dominic, of course, you know his he has you get that absolutely crushing scene where he where he tries to make the moves on Shaban. I mean, like that's all. You know, when you lose that 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 small connection, you you really don't have a whole lot. I mean, I, I was I, I was happy with this letter, and I because I I have I felt I felt the film is kind of almost sort of deep in, in reflection for that reason for me of just being a film that's that is a lot sadder than I really might have recognized at the time, just because Martin McDonough is such a clever writer and so you know in his films are you know there it's it just has such kind of snap to it but um but the more i think about that these characters and the, the world in which they occupy you know the kind of the deeper and darker the film tends to get in my mind keith you you weren't able to be there for that podcast what what's your overall take on on banshees since we didn't get to hear it from you oh i really liked it so i want to watch again at some point in part because i, I kind of want to i you know what guys i haven't listened to the episode yet i need to listen <laughs> yeah. to your episode and go back to it which is not an experience i get to do very very often but yeah it is rich and i i think what you're talking about is it is so funny that that darkness is you know, comes as a surprise, but I also feel like it kind of gets, you know, it, it, it's like a rising tide in that film where, where by the time, you know, you're swept up in it, 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 it makes sense. You know, things that it, it has, it has been going in this in direction uh, for a while. I think the moment the, the spoiler, uh, the fingers start to come off, you, you know, you think <laughs> things are going to make a turn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Incredible. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll hit the road again for murder, mayhem, and a little romance with Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, remember that Kit is wrong and that it's not okay to kill witnesses. Yeah.